0: I I used to walk around more when I prayed, I had my eyes closed, and I was standing too close to the edge and almost went off. (laughs) We have the joy this morning of welcoming a new member, so I'd like to ask Ann Wall if you'd come forward and we'll give the charge and any elders that are present this morning. Ann with an E. This is Ann Wall. Hi Ann, come on up. I'd like to read this charge to you. And do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? I do. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend on Him alone for your salvation as He's offered it in the gospel? Absolutely. And do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit? that you will endeavor to live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And do you promise to serve this church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service to God and its ministry to others to the best of your ability? You. And do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of this church and to the spiritual oversight of the elders? And do you promise to promote the unity, the purity and the peace of this church? Yes. We'd like to welcome you into membership. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Our Father God, we want to thank you so much for those who have joined us in this church family who want to be disciples, who want to grow, to be disciplined, and want to fellowship with us and with one another. And we pray for your richest blessings upon Anne as we now welcome her into membership in our fellowship in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Anne. join me for another brief moment of prayer. (laughs) Father God, we ask you in the name of your son Jesus to bless our fellowship and to cause us to have thoughts worthy of you. Jesus, we pray that you will please dispatch your Holy Spirit into both the speaker and the hearer to animate your word and to give it life in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that we might be a spirit-filled church and we might display those spiritual uh, disciplines and spiritual blessings not only to one another but to our world. And now we invite you, Spirit, who ordained the writing of this word now to please speak it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Near the end of his commentary in the book of Acts, <clears throat> Kent Hughes talks about John, Lloyd John Ogilvie who was the uh, chaplain to the Senate from 1995 to 2003. Ogilvie was writing about his experience that he had um, riding on the Queen um, Mary between New York and Southampton. Of course, with, on a student budget, he was bunked in the Double D deck, uh, but he spent most of his time, whenever he was awake, walking around on the top deck, because he liked to enjoy the cold, salt air and watch this graceful ship as it plowed through the, the high waves. And he would explore the ship and imagine what it must have been like Uh, to be on that ship during its heyday, when it was a a fine passenger ship, a pleasure vessel, and then later during the war, when it was used as a troop vessel trying to evade the enemy submarines. Uh, It was uh, years later that he uh, saw the Queen Mary again, and by this time, it was a museum piece that was uh, uh, docked in Long Beach Harbor, California, and by this time, her gigantic engines had been removed, Uh, most of her sailing equipment was gone, souvenir shops now lined the uh, the decks the dining area and the lounge areas have been turned into convention centers for groups to meet and most of the uh, most of these estate rooms were refurbished now into hotel rooms and they had hired actors complete with professional british accent to pretend to be the uh, the crew members and he was obviously disappointed at what he saw and in his own words ogilvy says while on board the motionless queen, I reviewed a documentary movie about how she was built and the way she had served through the wars and changing history. The movie ended with a triumphant but somehow tragic statement supported by an upsweep of dramatic music. The greatest ship that ever went to sea is now the greatest ship to come and see. The words were still on my mind the next day when I greeted the congregation of my Hollywood Presbyterian church after worship. A woman visitor from Iowa made a comment she meant to be a compliment. The similarity to the closing lines of the movie made it just the opposite. She had heard about Hollywood Church for years and had been inspired by the influence of its preaching and program upon America. With excitement, she said, I have waited for years to visit Hollywood Presbyterian Church to see all the great things that used to happen here. Not exactly what what a pastor wants to hear. Of course, that woman's well-meaning statement was not true of Hollywood Presbyterian Church. But every church faces the danger of becoming merely an historical monument. No church is more than a generation away from that possibility. I suppose we all know about different churches from our life that uh, were once vibrant, once spirit-filled, once dynamic, but now they're stale or perhaps uh, even empty it's it's really common i started thinking about all the churches right here in our community which are just uh, empty vessels of what once was i like to look at those old churches and imagine the congregations that used to gather there that they came there to, to praise the lord jesus christ and and now there's either nothing there or they're repurposed church like there's one up by the high school on pierce street and down on chimicum just past uh, on Center Valley Road just past the, the Four Corners there, and there's one in Hadlock near the QFC. There's one right across the street, the Nazarene Church, um, the one in Swansonville. The, the, my point is, it's really quite common for a church that was once active and, and vital to become stale or completely non-existent. And you know, uh, Sean Lucas, the, a professor at Reform Seminary wrote, One lesson that has pressed itself upon me is that it only takes one generation for a church to die. As part of the research work that I've been doing, I've tracked down various churches that are mentioned in biographical sketches or represented in various events. Just today, for example, I tried to find out information about Point Breeze Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh where Harold Ockingham ministered, Central Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga where William Kosir pastored, United Presbyterian Church in Wheeling, where John Reed Miller served, Central Presbyterian Church in Jackson, where R.E. Hugh pastored. What do these congregations have in common? They were all thriving, large, significant churches pastored by conservative, talented men, and they no longer exist today. Now, the reason that these churches no longer exist are as varied as the congregations themselves. Still, as late as 1950, they were all thriving congregations. And if a congregational death can happen to these congregations, it can happen to my congregation and to yours. And then Lucas concludes his statements by saying, it would only take a generation for a church to show signs of decay, perhaps a poor pastoral choice, a failure to continue to preach the word of God faithfully, a transition in the church's understanding of mission, an inability to see and adapt to the neighborhood around it, It's enough to cause us pastors to get down on our knees and to beg God to continue to grant mercy to our congregations and to grant them mercy in the generations after us. Last week, we finished our expositional study through the book of Acts. Throughout our study, we kept asking this question, what does the Spirit-filled church look like? Well, we asked that question because, obviously, we want to be a Spirit-filled church. We want to see the signs and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our congregation. We want to be a a charismatic congregation. We just don't want the chaos that often comes with it. No, we want to be Spirit-filled. We want... The, the remarkable spiritual power that is, that is evident when a church is experiencing koinonia. We wanna have the kind of love that Christ promised that we would have love for each other and be loved by one, an, one another. We want that. We want that as a spirit-filled church. And so we've been asking, what did the early church have that so changed the world? Can we have that too? So our study in the book of Acts opened with Christ's ascension and his commission, Acts chapter one, verse eight. Uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we saw the amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples at Pentecost. Acts chapter two, verse one. When, they were, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The church that's not a monument of the past or... An empty edifice inside is a church that's steaming forward as the church was in the book of acts and the church today that's doing that needs to be an acts 29 church an acts 29 church has three distinctives which are found in the book of acts from chapters 1 to 28 because by now you realize there is no chapter 29 in the book of acts Three distinctives that are found not only in the book of Acts, but really throughout all of the Bible. The, the distinctives that make a church vibrant and alive and moving forward are worship, koinonia, and evangelism. Acts 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved so luke paints a portrait of this infant church uh, in acts 2 and he says, first of all, the church was a worshiping church. He says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayers. See, this upward focus towards God pervaded their lives. They, they daily worshiped in the temple. They met together to, to break bread. They used the symbols of food, the bread and the wine to remember the life and the death of Jesus. See, worship is the primary purpose and primary characteristic of any living, vibrant church, any church that refuses to become a monument to the past. And it's been said that the immense tragedy of the contemporary church is that most people worship their work, they work at their play and they play at their worship. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, we have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Now, the second distinctive of the vibrant Spirit-filled church is koinonia. It's it's fellowship with and care for the other people in the church. Acts 2:42. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word there is the koinonia. And koinonia just simply means common, having something in common or commonness. But they don't mean that in the sense of ordinary, uh, being ordinary. They mean that in the sense of joint participation. So there's two senses, two ways that we use the word koinonia, or, or sharing. One of them is that you share with someone in your material goods, and that's usually how it's meant in the New Testament, that someone is in need and you share with them the stuff that you have, that kind of koinonia a commonness. But the other kind is where you share with someone the facts of life. You share life with them. You, you share their life experiences. So here in Acts 2, verses 44 and 45, we have these people sharing their resources together. They, they gladly give. It was costly to them. They cared for one another. They invested themselves socially and materially and spiritually into one another's lives. And those who prospered gave to those who were struggling. The members of the body were then encouraged to encourage one another, to care for each other, to look out after each other's well-being, to to pray for one another. That's koinonia. Well, that kind of koinonia is important in the life of the church. The reality is it just really can't take place in the setting of a a worship service in a Sunday morning fellowship time. It needs to take place in the small group setting where we care for each other, where we love on one another, we hold each other responsible. Ultimately, that kind of koinonia is infectious. Jesus said in John 13, 34, 35, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. When the world sees that we love each other, the fire of the gospel spreads. It ignites. When we are at Acts 29 church, we are spreading the flames of salvation and we are demonstrating the love of God to a world that is lost. Let me pause here to make a couple obvious observations about what an Acts 29 church is. Obviously, in your Bible, there's no Acts 29, right? You might also notice that in chapter 28, there's no verse 29, but there, there are, are some people who's, who make the observation that Acts 28 seems to end um, unsatisfactorily, uh, there, there must be more to the story. And so uh, a a chapter called Acts 29 has resurfaced. In 1871, uh, this fellow in England came up with the missing chapter of Acts 29. And uh, supposedly, uh, he got this, uh, it's called the Sononi Manuscripts, and the theory is that this French, uh, uh, what was the guy's name, Sononi de Manicourt, Um, in in the end of the 18th century found this hidden manuscript in uh, Constantinople, or it was given to him by the Sultan Abdul Ahmed. No kidding. And he translates the Acts 29, and it tells us what Paul did after Acts 28. I've read it. It's really poorly written. It doesn't have Luke's style at all. And it was written for a purpose, and that was to promote British uh, Israeli imperialism. So anyway, in the story in Acts 29, Paul goes to Spain. Well, we already know that. But then he goes to Roman Britain. And there in Britain, he preaches on Lud Hill, which is the, coincidentally the very place where St. Paul's Cathedral was later built. And he's he's ministering to this group of Druids who claim to be one of the lost tribes of Israel. So they already have this background of that. But at any rate, it's poorly written, and uh, there, even judging from its internal evidence and from any uh, scholarly stuff, it, it's, it's a fraud. But there is a, a, an Acts 29 that's surfaced around. Okay, so secondly, there is a network of churches called the Acts 29 Network. There's actually been many different Christian movements which have borrowed the name Acts 29 because Acts is really the acts of the apostle, but if we're talking about the acts of the church or the acts of Christians, there's no end to the book of Acts because we are Acts 29. We are the following, the group. So this affiliation, this Acts 29 network, is committed to fulfilling the Great Commission by planting churches that plant churches. It's this global family of, of uh, churches that are united by the Reformed theology, um, the uh, they're they're fulfilling the next chapter of of Christian history. Uh, It was founded in 1998 by Mark Driscoll and David Nicholas. Uh, The current leader of Acts 29 Network is Matt Chandler. He's been the president since uh, 2012. They now have 740 churches in six continents. And their stated mission of Acts 29 Network is to be a diverse global family of church planting churches characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional in- innovation. Of course, they, they're not making claims to be a denomination and they, they make no claims to the style or the model that they, that they practice. They, they said, uh, we have churches that live, that have live preaching others with video delivered sermons. We have independent church plants, replants existing churches that want to focus on planting churches out of their existing congregations. Simply, we seek to be a movement of church-planting churches, and it's not a denomination. In fact, many churches that are in the Acts 29 network belong to a denomination, like in Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, is the part of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America the village church where Matt Chandler pastors is part of the Southern Baptist Convention so it's not a denomination it's a network of churches who are like-minded but i'm not really referring to either one of these when i talk about Act, that we should be an acts 29 church and i'm suggesting i'm imploring that as an acts 29 church that we sustain the unwavering belief that the god of the bible the god of acts 1 through 28 who poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, and then that, that fire spread throughout the Roman Empire and spread throughout the world, that that God is still at work using us, his chosen instrumentation, to ransom the lost for the glory of his name. And that those who are being redeemed by the chosen instrumentation of other Christians are fulfilling the commission to bring in a harvest of souls. That's what I mean when I talk about us being an Acts 29 church. So specifically, what does that look like? You know, What does a spirit-filled church look like? What does an Acts 29 church look like? I'm glad you asked, because I think it should look a lot like an Acts 19 church, and I invite you to turn back. I know that we covered this, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but an Acts 29 church ought to look a lot like an Acts 19 church. Now, remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. Remarkable miracles have been done um, through Paul, and the people are quite impressed, so much so that there's a group of brothers, these Jewish exorcists, who decide to perform an exorcism using the name of Jesus Christ, whom they do not know, and they try to Uh, exorcise a demon in Jesus' name. And so in the process, you know, they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And the demon responds to them, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the demon beats these guys up and sends them them out of the house naked. Acts chapter 19, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, I've just told you that Paul was doing extraordinary miracles but it was not the miracles that Paul was doing that impressed the Ephesian community or the Christian fellowship there. It was, however, the knowledge when these exorcists got the tar beat out of them by a demon that this spiritual conflict was quite real and Jesus was infinitely more powerful than all of these magic arts and all of these demonic forces. That's what got their attention, this stuff is real let's quit fooling around with religion they were amazed at the power and the authority in the name of Jesus and because of this amazement this awareness that this is this is real that we're talking about the church became highly sensitized to their own sin we're talking about Christians already saved already in the church who became very much aware of the sin that was still part of their lives. And they came to one another and they confessed their sins, some of which were involving in the the demonic and the occult. They confessed their sins and they stopped doing them. Confession and repentance. I commented when we were here before in Acts 19... What a powerful testimony that would be if we got that serious about our faith where we confessed our sins to each other and stopped doing them and we held each other's feet to the flame and asked, are you still not doing those things? Of course, we won't do that. I don't want you to know what a derelict I am, so I'm not going to tell you. You don't want me to know what a derelict you are, so you're not going to tell me. And so we keep those things to ourselves and we just continue to live in this marginal Christian faith because we're not willing to go out on a limb. But can you imagine not only the transformation that would take place in the church if we confessed our sins to one another and we repented of them, can you imagine what a testimony that would be to the community that we were that serious about what we said we believed in. So they were convinced enough that they were willing to uh, place it all on a, on a table, and burn that stuff down. Uh, your, your text says it's 50,000 pieces of silver. That's, that's the earnings of 150 men for a year or $7.5 million. That's, that's a pretty costly sacrifice, but they were willing to do that because they believed in the cause. Don't you wonder, why, why don't you just sell that and use that $7,500,000 that 7, to do a mission someplace? You know, why don't you use that money for a good cause? No, they realized this is real. Whatever it costs is not too great and abandoning our sin and turning away, turning away from these demonic delusions. They were that serious about their faith. But it brings the question home, are we, are we that serious about our faith? Are we that serious that this is real, that we're dealing with? Are we absolutely convinced about the power and the authority in Jesus' name, or are we just more content to sit here and learn about Christianity and learn about Bible content and be good students? Are you a cautious Christian? You, yet you still hold on to your secret sin? Do you dabble with your signature sin, and yet you come hoping to erase all that by praising Jesus on Sunday morning? Now I'm sure you want to have power in your life. I'm absolutely convinced you want to experience victory. You want to know the joy that goes with that kind of victory. But how badly do you want it? You want that kind of freedom. You want that kind of power. Yet you still leave the welcome mat out for the devil. Brothers, we all struggle with sin. We all wrestle with our signature sin because we like it and we keep going back to it like a dog returning to its vomit. We hold tightly to it. We we resist giving it up. But the process of doing so, we never allow Jesus to transform us. We never come to the point where we can experience the victory of the tremendous joy of of living in that victory. These guys, they publicly confess. There's no half-heartedness here. They renounce the tools of Satan. They rid themselves of its grip. They burn their scrolls and they burn their bridges behind them. So the church of Ephesus is marked by confessing and repenting. My point is just simply this, that real Christianity is dirty, it's gritty, it's messy stuff. When I was in college, I belonged to this Christian fellowship. I actually lived in a Christian fraternity, and I lived with these about 15 other guys. It changed from time to time. And we met together as young men, and we openly confessed our sins to one another, and we prayed for each other, and we held each other accountable. We celebrated one another's victories. We mourned one another's failures. We asked one another the hard questions of life. I I long for a church like that. I miss that. But you know what? That church is gone now. Literally, there is an empty shell where once spirit fire existed. What happened? What happened in Ephesus? Fifty years after this passage where we just read, Ephesus is brought up again now in Revelations chapter 2. And by this time, 50 years later, it was no longer a gritty, messy church. They had matured. They'd become like us, much more sophisticated in their Christian faith. And Jesus says in Revelations 2, chapter, one, or chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." So 50 years after this Ephesus being a gritty, messy Christian church, 50 years later, they're still an active church. They're still influential. They're still theologically correct. They're still standing up for their faith, but they had left their first love, and now they are at risk of ceasing to be a spirit-filled church. And you got to wonder, how does that happen in such a short time? In 50 years. Well, I think we need to back the train up a little bit because remember when Paul, the last time he would meet with the church elders of Ephesus, he met them in Miletus. And he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And if you want to turn there, I'm going to Acts 20. So just a few more pages along. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul is meeting with the pastors, the elders of the church, and he says, "'Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock "'in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, "'to care for the church of God, "'which He obtained with His own blood. "'I know that after my departure, "'fierce wolves will come in among you, "'not sparing the flock. "'And from among your own selves will arise men "'speaking twisted things to draw away men, "'the disciples after them. Uh, "'Therefore, be alert.'" Now, let me modify this. Admittedly, I'm changing scripture, but let me modify this to make my point in applying this not only to the elders of the church, but now let me apply this to everyone who calls Calvary their church home and the people in this room, their brothers and sisters, their church family. Imagine if Paul was saying rather, pay attention to yourselves and to the church of God where he has placed you. See, Paul recommends a three-pronged vigilance here, and we have to be careful that we are observing these dangers, that we are alert to them so that we don't become a monument to what once was. He says, first of all, pay attention to yourselves. C.S. Lewis said, the true Christian's nostrils, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. See, we must never suppose that we have matured so much that we are not vulnerable to fall into the most despicable sins. We have to watch ourselves. We have to be alert to the fact that we can easily be duped and seduced. And more than that, that we are a willing ally with the enemy. We should never suppose that we we have attained to some maturity that makes us impervious to the temptations. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your Bible study. Pay attention to your prayer time. Pay attention to your intercessory time. Pay attention to your spiritual disciplines. Pay attention to the time you spend silently, quiet before the Lord, or you will fall prey. Second, we have to be on guard from the perils from without. Paul says fierce wolves will come in and attack you. You know, Heretics and secularists, cults, uh, spiritual enemies, they make a point of attacking healthy churches. They don't waste their time on churches that are weakened and obsolete. The enemy knows who represents the biggest threat to him, and he will launch his fiercest attack upon them. He doesn't need to bother with Christians which are milk toast. He doesn't need to give any attention to those who are ineffective and weak because he's already won the battle. They represent no threat to him. Third, he says, be on guard because of the perils from within the flock. He says, from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things. You know, Satan loves to subvert the church from within. Vigilance is ever the price of liberty. We must not Develop an attitude that we are safe and secure because we are in a Bible-teaching church. We, ha- we can't assume that everything is always well. We have to realize there are enemies within and from without. There are enemies inside the flock. We've been warned, and history has proved these things to be true. So once again, pay attention to yourselves and to all the church where God has placed you. Do not let yourself become Lazy, sleepy, or fat. There's a story told about this group of mallard ducks. that are flying south for the winter, and they're in this perfect formation, alternating leadership as one guy gets tired and falling back into this V. One of the mallards looks down, and he sees this barnyard, and he sees these barnyard ducks that are just waddling around, picking up corn, cackling, and having a great time. And he's tired. It's difficult to stay in the formation. It's hard to fly the distances that is required. And so he decides he's just going to take it easy for a little bit. I'll just fly down there and pick up some corn, say hi to the folks down there, and I'll just rejoin my group. He flies down and he starts eating corn and everybody's having a good time. Life is easy. There's no work involved. Everything you need is just brought right to you. I'll just catch up with those guys when they come back, when they head back north in a few months. Other flights go by and they call out to him, and he, say, he, he hears them and he longs to be part of the flight, but life is pretty comfortable right where he is. The next spring, he sees the flights coming north again, and they're calling out to him. And now he's excited to rejoin his friends, to be a wild duck again, to, to cruise the airways. And he starts to take off, but he's gotten too fat and he can't clear the barnyard. And so he tries for a while, but then he ends up, I'll catch him on the next, when they come down south again. More flights of ducks cruise over. He thinks about joining them. He gets all excited when he hears their call and he decides, I'll catch him on the next pass. The next time the flight comes through, he's eating corn He's waddling around in the barnyard. He gets all excited and his wings are fluffering, his tail is wiggling, but he goes right back to eating. After a while, he no longer pays any attention at all to the wild ducks that are flying overhead. He hardly even notices them because after all this time, he's become a barnyard duck the force of seduction is subtle and slow but it is sure you take life easy and it will swallow you up our church this church calvary community church is in its camelot years right now we're still growing we're still healthy we're still vibrant but if we are not vigilant this church too will become a monument to once was or what could have been that never was realized this church is one generation away from being useless this building is one generation away from being repurposed for some industrial use or or we're on the verge of breaking out of our lethargy, of committing ourselves to right worship, to costly, expensive koinonia, and a commitment to reach the world and our neighborhood with the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, to be an Acts 29 spirit-filled church. And look at all the churches around us that were once filled with Christians, once filled with Holy Spirit fire, once passionately in love with each other and with, and with Jesus Christ. Where are they now? What happened to them? Let's be committed that it's not going to happen here. Let's pray. We have enjoyed your many blessings, Father God, and we enjoy the facility that we have. We enjoy the delightful fellowship with one another. We enjoy the exposition of your word. but I pray, God, that we care for those around us, that we have an ongoing evangelism for our neighborhood and for the world. I pray that you will make this church an Acts 29 church. And Father, together right now, we pray for the generation that comes after us, That there will still be a vibrant, Christ-honoring, spirit-filled church in this building when we are all gone. Have mercy on us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.